if you were along last week and you came under the challenge that we thought about to love your enemies, those that are going to inherit the kingdom are going to love your enemies and thought that might be a little bit much, thought that might put the kingdom in doubt for you. This week, in a slight twist, the challenge is for us to hate our families. And as I was chatting to a few people on the way in, it might be a bit of a game changer. We might be okay with some of these things. Um, easier than you might think. It's not, is it? Hate your family. What is Jesus saying when he asks us to hate our family? It's the thing that gets our attention in the text. Hate your families. Why does Jesus use these words? The thing that I think that he's really talking about in this passage is discipleship. If, you've, if you make your way through the text as it comes up on the screen later on, you'll see that word come up over and over again. The, the, it's not a red herring. It's not quite that, but the thing that grabs our attention and takes most of our attention is this instruction to hate our families. And yet I think Jesus is talking about discipleship. Why does he upset everyone with the hate your family instruction? I think to emphasize to everybody there and to all of us thousands of years later the essential radical call of discipleship that sits on all of us. That is, I think, it's the kind of the first thing we can see in the text, if the text could be on the screen. In the very first verse, the first thing that I think this text says is that discipleship is not an option. I don't know how you viewed the idea of discipleship. Maybe you've put it in another category of Christianity. Discipleship is for everybody. Um, often, in the stories, as we follow Jesus' life through, Jesus is doing miracles, and there's 12 people with him, and there's this small entourage doing amazing things, faith-defining things, master-student things, and the people are watching on. But that is not the whole story of Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave it there. He turns, uh, in, in, a, in another version it says multitude, he turns to the large crowds and gives them what is one of the hardest sayings for anybody to comprehend. He says to the multitude, the guy walking around with his dog, the guy thinking about faith, the guy rowing with his wife, the guy who's just done a crime or whatever, he says to everybody that's gathered, all of us, I'm calling you to be my disciples. I'm calling you to the toughest stuff. I'm calling you to leave things behind that you love. I'm calling you to walk away from stuff. He doesn't... It's quite lovely. He doesn't divide everybody up. He doesn't say, right, clearly we've got some committed folk here. We'll divide you up and we'll divide the less committed folk up. Those that can carry a cross, if you're up for that, put your hands up. He doesn't do any of that. He says to the multitude, to everybody that's following him, if you want to be my disciple, then you've got to follow me to the hard stuff. I don't know Thankfully, for you and for me, I don't know where everybody is on the Christian path at the moment. I don't know where you are on the journey. If you're anything like me, you'll have stopped on that journey a good few times. You'll have paused. You'll have become an observer sometimes. You'll have wondered about how serious you need to take it all sometimes. And you'll have watched as others take it really seriously and maybe thought, that's discipleship. Jesus turns to the multitude, to all of us, 
and he gives us this command. He gives us this title. If you would come after me, pick up your cross. If you would come after me, you're going to have to drop stuff that is incredibly important to you. We are all in the ebb and flow of life. We are all in different seasons of life. We are all in different situations of life. And yet, no matter where we find ourselves on that journey to faith, if we are rock solid, if we are in our Bibles every day, if we feel like Jesus is just above the roof when we pray to him, or if we're not, if we're miles away, if we are stopped in our tracks and we are observing this Christian thing, just hanging on by our coattails, Jesus turns to all of us and he says, there's no tears to this. There's no different levels to this. You're all called to be my disciples. That's the first thing that I think it says. The second thing that it says, our text says, and this is the really challenging bit. You'll have noticed the second verse and the incredibly tough second verse. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not... I think it's the kids bit that really... That's what really stopped me in my tracks. Maybe I should have been stopped a bit sooner. That's what... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, I thought, well, maybe. Wife, there's times. Children, why does he tell us to hate? Why does he do that? Everybody, everybody who's public speaking at the moment will have, in a professional environment will have a script writer. I would imagine if Jesus had a script writer at this point, he would have said, just let's, we might be all right with all the members of the family, but let's not talk about the kids Let's not tell people to hate the kids. They would have scribbled that out. Jesus, you can't say that. What is Jesus saying when he tells us to hate on our families? Does he really want for us to go out of our way and build up a hating spirit towards, towards our families? Maybe you've been in social circumstances or you've got work colleagues or, or you, you just feel the pressure this is how human beings sometimes work. I've been in this situation, you'll have been in this situation, where you are told, if you want to hang around with us, you can't like them. You've been in that social circumstance? If you want to be in this group, you have to hate on them. Newspapers kind of tell us this sometimes, some of them. If you want to be in this gang, we don't like them. You've got to hate on them. That's the directive. Is Jesus saying to us, do we think, given that we're supposed to love our enemies, that we are supposed to hate on our own families. My contention would be, and I'm ready for the strangulation at the door, is that that is not what Jesus is saying here. It can't be what Jesus is saying here, given all of the other times when Jesus talks about love and how we're to feel about our families and how we're to feel about our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and the compassion that we're supposed to show that we're supposed to hate them, I think. So what on earth is he saying? I really struggled with this passage till Wednesday night because I've not really looked at it loads before in my life. And on Wednesday night, I found what I think to be a helpful thing to think about. In the Bible, it looks like, it might be different percentage-wise, but at least in my concordance, as it explained it, about 50% of the time, hate means hate. And other times, hate is used comparatively to emphasize the opposite truth. So I'm not just going to throw that at you and ask you to dismiss all that. I'm going to give you an example from the Bible. There's a well-known example from the Bible when you can kind of see this play out. And it's in the Old Testament in Genesis. You've maybe heard about Jacob who loved Rachel because she was beautiful and he got Leah. Maybe, are you familiar with this story? A little bit familiar with this story? He had to work an extra seven years to get Rachel. 
The early translations say, so Laban played a bit of a trick on him, a bit of a cruel trick. Yeah, you can marry my daughter, and then he finds out he's got to work an extra seven, seven years to, to get the daughter that he wants, and he gets Leah, who is less beautiful than Rachel. And early translations say that Jacob hated Leah. And if you read any of that story, you'll realize that he doesn't hate Leah at all. Later, the translations change it to say he loved her less. What is this story about? It's actually not about how Jacob feels about Leah. It's about his undying love for this woman, Rachel, that he would work 14 years to get. She was the love of his life. She was the apple of his eye. The passage isn't negative in that sense. We're not supposed to be thinking too much about Leah. We're thinking about love and Jacob's love. Great love uh, for this woman. We see this kind of thing. We might think this is a bit of a stretch, but we see this kind of thing all over our literature from the year dot up to now. It's, all, it's in all of our songs and it's in all of our love poetry. The detail, we detail the negatives, the terrible things, to emphasize the positive things. The best, I'm always 90s references, apologies. I'm trying, but there's just so many of them, okay? So the best example I could think of how this goes is with a Metallica song. I know there's loads of Metallica fans in, but there's probably a few Metallica fans in. One of their songs, it's got this refrain in it. It's quite famous. It just goes over and over again. Nothing else matters. You might have heard this song. Nothing else matters. The song is not saying that nothing else in life matters. You know, he's dressed in black, this guy. He's quite dour sometimes. That's not his message. His message is not nothing else matters. His message is actually really beautiful. It's written to his girlfriend. His message is, I've found the love of my life. And now things that do matter just matter a lot less. It's not about the negative things. The negative things are there to emphasize the positive. What is this passage saying? What do I think Jesus is saying to us? Do we hate on our families? No, I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying in really striking dramatic terms. Sometimes the language that we use in relationship, when we talk to our loved ones, we will say at some point, if we really love them, you'll say to them, I want you to love me, and I want everything else just to fade into insignificance. That is the heart's desire with love. Jesus is saying here, I think, I want all of the things that you think you love, or that you love, compared to me, just to dissipate into thin air. Compared to me. Don't know if you think that's a bit soft. Maybe you think that discipleship's not really about love. Maybe you think it's a studious business. It's got structure. It's like a program-driven thing. It's like a tier of Christianity. That's what you might think. Remember the God of the Old Testament. The harsh one. The one that reads quite harsh. That people melted when they saw. Who thundered out commands from the top of mountains, who chiseled rules into stone tablets that you drop on your toes and crush them. That God is summed up concisely by Jesus and by the Bible as a God of love. If you want to understand exactly what God is like and his laws and his rules and his program, Jesus says, I can sum it up for you in a sentence. Love the Lord your God Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you think it's 
too soft a story, that and peddling. If you think discipleship is something else, it's a more academic practice, a more learned practice, I would say the Bible has always been a love story. It's always been a love story. And Jesus is holding out for us, his followers, to fall for him. Love is a great cheat. It's a great way to get things done. It's a great way to learn. If you love something, if you really love something, the endeavor is a lot less. If you love your job, you work for free and all that kind of stuff. Jesus says to us at the start of our road to discipleship, I want you to fall for me. I don't want you to tick the box. don't want you to attend. don't want you to go through the motions. I want you to see me on the cross. I want you to see the way I give my life up. I want you to see me in the story where the people were wandering off with no hope, and yet Jesus comes, and I want you to see that I love you, and I want you to fall for me in that way. So disciples, first of all, we're all called to be disciples. Disciples have got great love. Disciples reorder their loves. And the last thing that I think this text shows us, and obviously there's more to discipleship than this, but this is what we're going to focus on today. Disciples consider the cost. Disciples consider the cost. Most public speakers, and I put myself in this bracket as I do do that a little bit, but every public speaker I can think of, even when they're being controversial, they're looking to gain listeners, to keep an audience. They say stuff hoping that next week more people come back, more people listen to the podcast. Jesus has got the listeners. There seems to be always multitudes following him, but he seems less concerned with keeping everybody. I don't think that he is, but it reads like he is. He almost seems intent on, cut, on cutting them down, sorting them out, the wheat from the chaff, if you will. He wants, at the start of the journey towards discipleship, for people to know exactly what they're getting into. He's not peddling a soft gospel, not telling them everything's going to be fine. He says, if people are going to follow me, they need to think about the cost of this. So there's two examples, and they're interesting examples, and I'll just read them through, and I'll try and explain what I think he was getting at what I think he was getting at. Maybe you've got a different opinion. Verse 28, this is him saying, I want you to think about if you're going to follow me or not. I really want you to give it some thought. Here's why. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see, your, to see if you have enough money to finish it? Because if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I've had quite a bit of that in my life. I've started quite a few projects, and then people come to me and say, oh, good on you for starting that, but you've not got to the end. I would imagine, as Jesus walked around, the way that they built houses was different in those times. There would have been lots of half-built houses, lots of grandiose plans. There was definitely one that we can read about, the temple, Herod's palace. He was going to build this great facade, this amazing thing. It was huge. And the people, so the history books tell us, would just laugh at it and go, you're never going to, ever going to finish that. And they never did. There was that kind of story. I tried to think, what's the comparative story today? And I thought about HS2. That was the one that came to mind. If only when they started that project, they would have thought, I think we're going to be able to finish this. 
Sure, they did. But it looks to us like they didn't. <laughs> Doesn't it? It looks, to, it looks to us like they didn't. It looks to us like they just didn't really think about it at all. And along the way, because they've not thought about it, there's loads of hurt. There's loads of trouble. There's loads of unnecessary worry. It's been this huge, long journey, and we've got no idea where it's going to end. And our wishes as a population would be, I wish we'd have thought about that some more at the start and nailed that down. The other example, verse 31 to 32. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. This is such a timeless example. Jesus' teaching is so sharp. A king goes to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000, he says knowingly. If he's not able, if he knew what was coming the other way, we should say, he would send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. Um, there's a scholar called N.T. Wright, who's a good uh, New Testament scholar. He says that Jesus would have had in mind, and we don't know if this is, this is exactly true, he would have had in mind the, the Hebrew zealots, the Judean zealots who wanted their own land and who were ready to go to war with Rome and who saw some of the soldiers of Rome on their doorstep but would have had no clue as to the might and power of Rome. These people with a wooden sword or whatever in their hands thinking, let's take them on. Let's go for it. Shouldn't we think more when we go to war? Don't we look back at every war that has happened and say, man, we should really have thought about that. If we only knew that this war would take 20 million lives, would we have done it? If we knew that this war would still be going on 10 years later and it wouldn't actually resolve it, would we have done it? Jesus says you need to think about the cost of this, what you're doing. I want to engage you in such a way that causes you to think about the cost of this thing that you're on. You need to stop in your tracks. You need to know the cost of this. You need to know it might take a long time. You might be at this Christian thing for a while. You need to know it might cost you more than you know. Don't, Jesus says, I guess, to our contemporary culture. Don't just think this is like an extra yoga class. Don't, don't just think this is mindfulness. Don't, this is, don't think this is some little bit of teaching that's helpful. Don't, if it's just that, don't come along just for that. Jesus says to all of us, he says, I want to be the apple of your eye. I want to be the love of your life. And that's going to take all your attention. That's going to demand sacrifice. But not only that, I'm going to a cross. You need to know from the get-go, somewhere down the line, and I guess I can't not preach it if I'm a pastor, somewhere down the line, this amazing faith thing that gives us all hope, it'll cost somewhere. It will challenge some of the things that are big for you in your life, some of your loves, somewhere down the line. I don't know what one it will be, but it will be one. So disciples, we're all called to be one. It changes our love around, gives us greater love, greater focus of our love. And it causes, it's got great cost. And we're supposed to consider that cost. In closing, what I would say 
there are some elements of this job that I, if I'm really honest, I, t I take quite lightly. Decorations, putting fairy lights up, I'm not the most health and safety conscious person in the world. I get up there with a ladder, I've got a brew in my hand, I'm sticking everything up. There's bits of it I take lightly. When I talk to people about Jesus, when I talk to people about salvation, I am, it's heavy for me. Like, I'm excited to talk to them. I know this can change their life around. I know that it can save them. But in the back of my mind, I'm not unaware that down the line for this person who's saying, right, okay, I'm going to, I believe that there is cost. I know in the initial foundational conversations, I meet somebody for coffee, talk to me about this faith thing. I know right there and then the big cost that is down the line. The great hope and the big cost. But and I've been doing it so long, it's still where I go every time. Why? If I don't go to that cross, think about that list at the start. If I remain in love with my life more than anything, if I can't, if I think of myself, if, I'm, if I love myself the most, which is a little bit our culture, if I love myself to the extent that everything else comes secondary to that, whether it's my health or my popularity or whatever else it is, if I do that, I'm ruined. I will ruin myself. And the people around me will be ruined, trying to hang out with me and stay in my life. If, and I say this heavily, thinking my kids are the best, three best people in the whole world, if I love my kids more than anything else. If I put my kids on a pedestal and everything else dissipates into thin air, if I don't have any other considerations in the world, if they go there, if I make gods of them, if you will, can't do any wrong, great though they are, you know this, I'll ruin them. I'll mess it up for them. If I elevate them to that level, it'll be impossible for them to keep up and I'll become an idiot, proclaiming them all the time. It's ruinous. And my wife, who I love, and is great, and probably thinks, I don't mind if you make a god out of me, I could go with that for a few weeks. If I do that, in the end, one of us looks down six feet and is broken hearted and has nothing. If my wife is right at the top and everything else dissipates. But... And here's the brilliant but. If I go to the cross, if I go to the cross first, and I find at the cross somebody who loves me unconditionally, somebody who's got forgiveness ready for me, somebody who's got real, genuine hope, somebody who loves me in a way that can change me, then he might just save me from myself. There's hope for my kids, and there's hope for the grave.